2: Welcome. My name is Michael Johnston, and this is a new episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And today I have Dr. George Musgrave on to discuss his book, "Can Music Make You Sick: Measuring the Price of Musical Ambition," which he co-authored with Sally Ann Gross. Thank you for joining us today,
1: Dr. Musgrave. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
2: And uh, let's get right right to it. What uh, what led you to this uh, to writing this book and conducting the research for this book?
1: Well, really, it was a it was a coming together of the research interests of myself and Sally, Sally Ann Gross, who who I wrote the book with. Um, as you, as you just said in in the introduction, there before I um, started my lectureship, when I was finishing my PhD, I was trying to think what my kind of next major research project was going to be, building on the themes that I'd explored in the PhD, which was about. As you just said, competition, how competition is experienced, what it feels like as, as a kind of behavioral and psychological phenomenon, basically. And when I met Sally, and I actually met Sally through uh, making music, her son was producing a record and he he, he produced it and I was rapping on it. Um, when I met her, she had told me that for years she'd been thinking about changing working conditions, what that meant for musicians, drawing on her time. Running the masters, but also she's a music manager and has worked in the music industry for about 30 years. And she said, I've got this project idea. I've got this title Can Music Make You Sick? And people are not really taking it that seriously. Like I keep running into a brick wall about it. People think that all artists are a bit mad. So maybe it's not really a proper research project. And um, yeah, I remember saying to her, No, I think that sounds amazing. Like we should, because I had emotional themes as part of my PhD. And so we kind of came together with my kind of research research background and ideas of competitiveness along with her music industry experience and this and basically this title which which she'd come up with, which kind of drove it drove it forward, so it was a real like kind of meeting of minds, I suppose yeah, so one of the uh key components of this of this article
2: uh, I think was the difference between well being and mental health. Uh, a key distinguishing um, concept uh, between the psychology and the sociology so as you were approaching this I, I think maybe you had mental health and well-being in mind is that is that true and yeah. i guess maybe, yeah maybe absolutely. distinguishing between
1: the two absolutely and 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 also trying to look at well-being and mental health from our, our Um, Kind of disciplinary perspective, because of course, like we're not psychologists and we're not uh, medical clinicians. What what we're interested is is in um, working conditions and and the kind of and the workplace within which you know musicians find themselves. And so we we, we're kind of exploring the difference between the two. And and I suppose one of the differences is that you know well being is a kind of um, more general catch-all term and it includes like an individual's their internal state but also external factors right that could contribute towards flourishing or feelings of happiness or contentment and things whereas mental health is relating more specifically to kind of psychological states so you have the who who kind of define well-being as being like a state where everyone can realize their potential can cope with the normal stresses of life can work productively and fruitfully and can make a, a contribution to their community the quote is something like that So you have well-being as containing these kind of external drivers, external circumstances, but also internal psychological factors that kind of impact the the lives of individuals and stuff. Um, So well-being is kind of this societal goal, right, that you're trying to achieve for the kind of overall improvement in, in people's lives and kind of it's become a real um political descriptor right you see it in the work of people like uh, my colleague at goldsmith's called will davis david who's done who's done a lot of work on this whereas obviously mental health is more specifically about the individual and their state of mind and well-being has this has an individual's external social position but what was interesting throughout a lot of the literature on both mental health and well-being is you find references to like positive thinking right the importance of positive thinking and that the the centrality of positive thinking is one of the things that makes researching well-being and and mental health within the music industries uh, almost like a bit taboo because the music industries are all about this kind of techno-positivist mantra of staying positive. So looking at what it's like when that's not the case is is, is interesting at least. Um, And what we basically argue in the book is that when it comes to understanding well being and mental health, what matters in uh, at least what matters in a kind of methodological sense, is what people say, right, how people say they are feeling. So how people perceive their life is going from their from, you know, from their perspective, right? That's a quote from someone that we use in the book. And so the suggestion is that in an environment of kind of terminological imprecision, what really matters is what the subject says, right, the person's relative perspective. So that's what drove our method, basically, right, like taking people's self assessment seriously as being indicative of their relative mental state, and it's not a clinical diagnosis. Um, so that trying to disentangle that that um, distinction between well-being and between mental health is kind of what led us to our method right that it's about how people perceive it and and listening to them and when they tell you how they perceive it listening to it and taking that that seriously basically. So in this
2: sense you start to uh, take into consideration the social or the environmental factors uh, that have influence on the well-being or the state of well-being that uh, participants had. Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly right. I mean, that, that that's exactly right. And we draw a lot on the work um, of Smail and say that, you know, whilst we don't deny um, the, the kind of individual factors of people's backgrounds and things like that, um, you know, what we are trying to do is to try and say, like, we, we are trying to bring in those environmental factors and take those environmental factors seriously as a way of understanding how people see the world right so understanding what what um what smale argues right is that um for an understanding of an individual's total circumstances which includes that exterior world so what we draw on is that idea that you have to look both outward and inward right from the person to their environment which is which is material right and to understand that material environment um yeah, yeah.
2: Kind of looking at the looking glass self, the taking in and and readjusting, determining on what one sees their identity as being, and in this particular, looking at the music world and uh, participants of it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that leads maybe to the next question: Music is not the same today as it was yesterday in the sense of how it is provided, and how it is distributed. How has this change in distribution of music changed the platform and how how we as an audience listen to music or how it is performed by the uh, by the
1: actors right i mean it's it's a it's a big question and it's one that that drives a lot of the kind of early um discussion in the book right understanding and and it, we return to it at the end as well it kind of top and tails the book i suppose but this idea that that, that those distributory mechanisms of music has changed and that's like one of the key people that we use when we start to think about this is is Angela McRobbie and there's a quote that we use in the book um that's hers and it's from 20 years ago it's from 1999 and the quote is something like you know nobody has has asked how much art or music or fashion we can actually accommodate and she says how many cultural workers can there be so the what we're doing in the book is to try and say like what happens when everyone is making art when art is everywhere Right. There's never been a time before where we have thought that everyone could make art. Right. It used to be special and in special places made by special people. And now you have ideas that like, you know, we're all artists now. Right. Or like David Bowie saying that music would be like running water or would be like electricity. And even when you think of the word streaming, right, that implies a certain infinity and a kind of endlessness. So th- that idea of the change in the distribution of music for us, we our analysis centers around this term of abundance. And so like music today is like special and everywhere, right? It's like unique, and it's abundant. And abundance, in terms of this distribution of music, it's a really key term, because like outside of the sphere of, of economics, for example, you you, like abundance is a good thing, right? You say like, Oh, we've got an abundance of fruit, or, you know, there's an abundance of opportunities or something, there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of normative implication, right, that it's good but there's also like abundance also implies excess and excess can create waste and excess can give rise to problems like in a marketplace and like neoclassical economics shows what those problems are, right? Like diminishment in profit and suboptimal outcomes. What we wanted to look at was like looking at kind of psychological suboptimal outcomes, I suppose, of that abundance, abundant production, and like, you could look at this and you could look at that question another way as well, right? That as listeners, as people that listen to music, like we all do, our relationship due to uh, the distribution of music has been completely transformed, right? Because it's everywhere and the way we interact with it has changed. So music always has, has always had uses, right? Like people construct their identity through music or whatever. But today you find that, music consumption has become this kind of private, individualized thing where you have playlists to study to, or playlists to do yoga to, or playlists to go to sleep to, or playlists to have a bath to, right? Music has a certain utility that means that the listener's relationship to music has changed. And what we were saying is that if this shift, if if it's changed for the way consumers use music, it must have changed for the producers too, and the way that they produce it. And the focus is often on the consumers and we wanted to move the focus to producers and say like, what what does it mean to be a music maker when music is everywhere? And I suppose that the argument that we try and develop is that we draw, we draw on Keith Negus's idea in the book that now being a musician has changed. And what Keith, the way Keith Negus describes it is he says like that musicians have changed from being, like a creator of a product and now they're a curator of content right music music isn't art anymore music is data like networked data and so we are saying that that must have repercussions for the people that produce it like that has to have reproduction that has to have um, implications sorry for the people that produce it and that's really what we're looking at
2: yeah and that and that implication that it has or consequence that it has on the producer lies in the in the areas of work value and relationships that are mutually reinforcing uh uh, more than mutually uh exclusive i think in in your study and seeing how how the producers work and uh what their values are and the relationships with the music and their audiences is that that right
1: yeah right and and so the the three features that you that you've just mentioned there are the kind of three, they're the three kind of central um, chapters in the book in which we explore these kind of three main features of musical work that we look at in order to explore the ways in which um, having musical ambition, I suppose, seeking to build a musical career, comes to uh, harm, I suppose, or like negatively impact the emotional well being of, of the musicians making it. And it, there's a crucial distinction. Here, which is that a line we sometimes use when we're talking about the book is that making music is therapeutic but making a career out of music is traumatic and I suppose that's the thing we look at and the way in which building that career is traumatic is through those three those three features which you've just outlined and we call them statuses and we call it um, we have the first one is called the status of work which is where we look at the way in which musical work, how music understood through the prism of employment, what that work is and how that work is experienced has changed. So that's kind of the economic. Then we also look, look at the cultural, which is what we call the status of value. So the status of value is sort of, the ways in which musicians evaluate their creative labor, kind of online and in the music industry, the ramifications that has for how they communicate, the nature of this evaluation, things like that. And then the, the third factor is, like you said, the social, and um, which the, the, that status, we call the status of relationships. So the ways in which musical labor comes to occupy and consume the lives of the musicians making it and destabilizes the relationships of, the, of those around them those are the kind of three main chapters in the book basically and and you know within each of those there's a lot that we could you know I'm sure we're going to delineate and discuss but yeah though that that kind of the economic the cultural and the social are, are the three interrelated features that, that we that we explore in the book really they, those are our kind of findings yes and, and i guess the first Part to dive into
2: then is, is the work piece, the economic piece. What did labor look like for musicians? It wasn't simply making music. I think it was uh, much larger than that. Uh, particularly when it gets to uh, making a career out of music, the the distinction characteristic that you just mentioned between making music, which can be therapeutic, but also the career of music, which can
1: uh, become traumatic. Right. Right. And 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 what we explore in this idea of looking at music as the the status of work the the kind of economic the the way in which we understand it as i say through the prism of kind of employments the kind of economic rewards i suppose of of doing music is we essentially unpack how music makers engage with a kind of a, a terminological and a conceptual struggle to define their working practices as labor and the difficulty in in conceptualizing what they do as labor and 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 the, the kind of problems that that all leads to so i mean i can i can dive into that a little bit so like musical work is a, is of course it's like making music but of course it's much more than that and and as as i mentioned in the in the previous sentence they they're kind of curators of content that are kind of must always be online because everything that they do is potentially an opportunity to like engage with their fan base or whatever and and people are doing a real wide range of things like writing the music recording it performing it obviously but then a whole a whole wide wide range of other things too whether it's organizing tours or um, developing a kind of whole infrastructure around themselves like developing themselves as so as kind of like a brand i suppose or and being entrepreneurial in that respect and i know lots of musicians might be kind of reticent to use the term um entrepreneurial but many of the people that we spoke to do exhibit those characteristics and i mean looking at that and saying it's difficult to earn money doing that which which is at, at its baseline is where we're kind of starting is not particularly um groundbreaking right and and that's been written about before uh, under this kind of prism of of a kind of exceptional economy of the arts it's been called by Abing, right That's kind of what he's called it this idea that it's hard to make money from it but what we build on in the chapter is this idea that that kind of very high level of financial precarity for what one does produces a kind of definite definitional existential crisis and that crisis is like if your labor doesn't earn you money, can you meaningfully refer to it as a job or as a career? So how do you know that your musical work, in fact, is work? And that creates issues both like internally for how the musicians feel about themselves and the work that they're doing. So we spoke to someone who was, who'd performed at Glastonbury and had had like many critically acclaimed releases, and in the interview she said to us well she worked in a shop as well and she said like well i'll meet someone and they'll say well what's your job and she and she said something like well i think i should mention the other stuff that i do because it it sounds more valid you know maybe it is more valid so you have that internal struggle but then you also have the external one as well so like one of the quotes that people refer to quite a lot in the book is um a producer that we emailed who said you know I'm sick of people asking me like whether I'm still doing my little music thing and I'll say well yeah are you still doing your little banking thing um so it's about like how that how that work is seen and what's interesting is like that that work because it's considered to be like a pleasure or or one that people think that you're kind of lucky to do that Nate that combination of of kind of Profound attachment to the work you do and absorption in it, which you can you can see as central in in discussions around the expanding service economy or knowledge economy, um, is that that method of work is kind of inherently like exploitative, right? Because all you need to do is kind of work harder and smile and and you know what you're doing is like a blessing, um, but that 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 creates issues with with the nature of that work. And we build on it in the chapter by saying that what this means is it leads to a number of problems, right? So one of the problems is how do musicians know they're successful? This is one of the things that we talk about a lot. Um, This idea that like, you know, if you go on TV, you go on one of these cooking shows on TV or whatever, and someone tells you like, oh, the cake you've made sucks, you know, that's a bad cake. then there's some kind of barometer there that you believe them like, okay, my cake is soggy, like ergo, my cake hasn't been successful. But of course in music, it doesn't really work like that, right? There's always this kind of subjective turning inwards whereby you're trying to work out whether what you're doing is successful or not. Um, it, it, and it, There's some really extreme um, challenges in that, trying to work out whether or not you're successful because we would we, you know we interviewed people for example who at the time were like number one in several countries had just come back from performing in las vegas and you know he lives with his mum is he successful there's someone else that we spoke to who'd had a career for 30 years he's probably not a name that you know you or i or or our students or whatever would know but he he sells sells out small venues and he's made a career out of it for 30 years and supported his family but he's not going to be you know number one anytime soon is he successful these are all things that are are very much up for debate in an environment where you're encouraged to be online and convince the world that you are successful that you appear successful right that you're appropriately communicating your cultural capital to others right and trying to transubstantiate that into some kind of um, economic sustainability which is like increasingly difficult to do um so the, the, these are all the questions that are tied up within, within the status of work, right? What is work? What does that work look like? How is that work successful? And in the end, if that work goes wrong, how do, we, how do we apportion blame, right? Like if you believe that this workplace is this kind of open meritocratic environment, we start the chapter with a quote from UK Music who say like, music is a meritocracy. It's just it's ridiculous. But if you, if you believe that music is a meritocracy, that means that when it goes wrong, that's on you. That's your fault. That's your problem. And these, these, these are all factors.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system
2: yes I, I think of that with the american dream maybe a, a uk dream meritocracy the belief that well if i try hard that i will be successful but uh um that's not always the case right it's more complex than that
1: yeah absolutely and and there's been this idea that music, in particular, is is a is a, a form of creative labour that um, lends itself to social mobility. Let's say in a way that perhaps like fine art does doesn't. So you're you know if you can sing in the shower and you know you sound good, then it's okay. You can go on um, X Factor or America or Britain's Got Talent and stand in a queue and through the magic like Clark Kent in the phone box you can be transformed from you know in England like a a a boy a nobody from Cheshire and suddenly like you're Harry Styles in one direction you know what's it's been called the digital economy of hope this is supposed to be one of the things which differentiates music from other forms of art and literature and there's this idea now right that musicians are in control in a way that they never have been before, you see this all the time. This kind of techno-positive, this techno-positivist idea that the musicians today have never had it so good, like they're in control. All you need is Garage Band, you know, like you plug in your microphone that you buy for forty quid from a secondhand shop and record it in Garage Band, and off you go. Like you can start marketing your music, and this is tied up in this idea that like music, like what well, UK music had written that music is a meritocracy. Well, you know the, the evidence demonstrates has been you know books recently on this has been a book that's just been published called culture is bad for you there were books um a few years ago by mark banks called creative justice there's plenty of evidence that demonstrates this is just not the case but the music industries are driven there's a term that we refer to again over and over again in the book which is this kind of rhetoric of fantasies um and there's this kind of fantasy in the music industry like this fantasy of participation like come and join in and it's brilliant like the more people that join in the better like let's all live these magnificent creative careers and these creative lives and it's wonderful and you know the best will rise to the top and that's that well the 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 evidence just doesn't bear that out you know it really doesn't and the reality is much more messy and and complicated. and ultimately in the end that these the way that that kind of rhetoric and labor is experienced by musicians emotionally is that it's an incredibly destabilizing place to work the nature of that work is incredibly destabilizing and that's that's where we're kind of building on this idea of precarity that precarity is more than just a financial reality it's a it's an emotional state as well it's a kind of a, a experiential precarity
2: and some of the complexity that is dealt with here is the um, is the value of social capital and cultural capital that serves some musicians more than others. Um, what what value, I, I guess, then does social capital and cultural capital serve for these musicians? Does it matter as to who they know, and whether or not they become successful? Right. So
1: that 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 question about social capital and and who you know is embedded in. I suppose that really that that's really about then what we move on to discuss. Like the the next chapter that we're in the book is this one called the status of value. So that's like instead of looking at work through the tradition through the prism of traditional employment, let's look at instead how validation is kind of sought and obtained for this work. How is kind of meaning derived and, and understood for this work? Um and like you say, the d- discussions of kind of social capital and um converting kind of social and cultural capital into one another is is central to what we're writing about so that discussion there i think relates a lot to how we understand the ways that musicians seek validation within the music industry but well, you know the people that we interviewed refer to it as the music industry and we know kind of what they mean by the music industry but of course it's a kind of blurred and kind of um, amorphous place um What you kind of see in a lot of those discussions and the people that we interviewed and spoke to is they will often talk about things like um, the role of luck, for example. Right, They will talk about their careers being ruled by a kind of mystical law of luck. So whilst you need like musical talent, family support, connections, hard work, whatever, these are kind of prerequisites they're kind of given you need a kind of amount of good luck and randomness and timing and circumstance. And that what you need to do, though, is kind of embed what you're doing within a more powerful structure. So you need to have you know, a track that has somebody more famous than you on it because like no one knows who you are. But if you can locate what you're doing within a matrix, an existing power matrix, that gives you a, better, a greater chance to be heard because what you're trying to do is cut through what's been called... Like the noise of creative ambition, you're trying to make. You're trying to embody what your your work with a kind of greater perceived level of cultural capital, and that by doing that, you can then cultivate and nurture more robust relationships of kind of social capital. That's basically what a lot of these musicians are really trying to do. And there's, and there's this idea that um, they need to. They need to embed what they're doing within a pre-existing power structure, basically, um, in order to distinguish themselves. I mean, there was a quote that I came across kind of years ago, um, and I remember thinking, this is just incredible. It sums up so much. Um, And it's a quote called the Babel Objection. And it says, when everyone speaks at once, how can anyone be heard? And that sums up a lot of the kind of status of value for musicians. Right. There's this idea that emerged particularly like 10 years ago and it came out of kind of billboard and pitchfork and others. So this kind of techno positivism that says like the entrance to the music industry has been completely democratized, right? There's been this transfer of power from a kind of reified Leviathan of the music industry that now musicians have been empowered by digital technologies and there's no gatekeepers anymore. And all of that control has completely shifted and you, you, there have been reports recently written about this, and they're titled things like "Independent Artists: The Age of Empowerment," right? Or they're called, or you'll see articles online that says the musicians now in control, right? And that therefore you have the tools to to cultivate your kind of social and cultural capital. And like we talked about before, you know, it's on you. Like if you if you if you don't make it, that's really on you. And whilst technology has democratized processes of music making and and placed a certain level of um, creative and even distribution power within musicians. And that's been well charted. Um, Even so you still need to understand the kind of power structures of the industry within which you find yourself, right? Many musicians that we spoke to felt that they had a kind of um, a degree of control but seeking validation is a kind of complex and messy process that's reliant on networks. So in a world where you have unlimited choice, multiple consumption methods, exponentially increasing supply of music, customers, c- consumers basically have to find their music somehow. And in order for them to find you, you have to be, or people feel that they have to be part of this power structure that still relies on people, right? It still relies on... You know, a lot of big Spotify playlists are still curated by people. They're human beings that choose the songs. And for music to get to these people, there's a kind of music ecosystem of musicians and their managers in coffee shops in LA or in London, where they discuss it with the PR agent, gets given to a radio plugger and they have a conversation at a party so that then when your song lands in the email inbox of Spotify or Apple, um, yours gets listened to because it's a process of kind of networked, atomization where gatekeepers and cultural intermediaries do still matter. Making a musical career is a collective endeavor in a highly networked environment. It's a, it's a social experience. It's not one that you're just an individual on your own entirely in control of You're part of this network infrastructure. And in the UK,
2: London plays a very big role in this London is a is a music center. Is that correct?
1: yeah oh yeah absolutely i mean and the 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 people that we spoke to you know largely did acknowledge that or they or they they either they were either um fortunate that that was the case because they lived in london or they resented it because they had to move there but yeah i mean you know the the prs is here the musicians managing you know the music managers forum is here all the major record labels are here all the major publishers are here the bbc radio one one extra you know it is, uh, you know, London. London. It, it is that place that people that people need to come to.
2: So, alas, there are very few songs that make it popular. Though, no matter how many people can make the music and uh, sell it, there are very few musicians who become famous. And even once they do, that infamy may not last very long.
1: What makes for the sticky message? I mean that's <laughs> that's probably a question that you know if people really knew the answer to then uh people you know people would be doing something very different i suppose but i mean that that question of what makes a kind of message sticky is one that we try and explore in the book and i sort of briefly touched on it just before in, in the in the previous answer but you know one of the one of the things that you'll find is like particularly for for us, you know up and coming musicians let's say and we spoke to a, a whole wide range of musicians some who were like you know mercury prize winners and some who are just starting doing gigs in small venues um there's this term that john thompson introduced about 10 years ago which i really like which is called recognition triggers this idea that a song might need a kind of well-known sample or a featured verse from a kind of like in the uk for example like one of one of the things you find in the uk is like if a rapper gets signed to a mate well it definitely used to happen every time i don't know how much it still happens now but you know when a rapper got signed to a a major label over here it almost felt like the first thing that they did was like ring french montana and ask him for like a guest verse on this track because it's almost like well if people don't know who this particular rapper is like that's cool they probably heard of french montana so they can put him on the on the track so that people see them and the point is is that that achieving some level of stickiness you can try and you know you can draw on malcolm gladwell's concept of stickiness and and he has this kind of who these people are in order to try and achieve stickiness you know what ultimately comes out of it is that trying to do that is imprecise um the idea of stickiness is central to all kind of viral and, and influencer marketing um but it's hard to to really know what that looks like because of course there is some degree of um, imprecision in marketing cultural goods like that and i suppose really the question. For me, that's almost interesting to kind of flip that question. Is not to say, um, how does one achieve stickiness? I think it's more to say, when you when you when you understand that trying to achieve stickiness for a cultural product, right, having consumers listen to it, latch on. There's a degree of kind of luck, like a kind of almost like gambling. Like record companies are almost gambling on like what's going to work, and you can try and have some control over it. But the question really is like how much control do musicians really have in this environment right when you say oh you're an entrepreneur like you have all the tools in your hand and you you know it, it's really on you like how much control do you really have over that over that process um very little
2: yeah i think that uh, amount of control is is uh lessened uh more with the with the global market which is maybe an extension of this book and something you can look at of the global market of, of music and and how that has further complicated the music industry.
1: Yeah, right for sure. And that's that's probably another another layer that we that we can try and try and build on with this for sure. So, do some of the songs? Did you notice
2: that some songs go in and out of circulation with this uh, mass production, mass
1: consumption model of of music? Well, what's what's interesting is like that idea of of kind of removing songs from circulation. Um, You know, now, in fact, when a new song comes out, you're not just competing with all of the songs that are out at the moment. You're competing with kind of every song that's ever been released ever. So, like, for example, I was talking before about the need to like situate your music within a kind of power structure to to achieve a connection. Like one of the most lucrative sources of, of capital for music companies today is heritage acts, catalog acts. So the one of the biggest earners last year in 2019 wasn't a new artist, right? It was the Eagles. The Eagles like famous for Hotel California in the 70s. Um it's not new music. It's it's old music. And so there is a sense in which there's so much music being produced and so much music being released. There is some evidence which suggests that there's a degree of kind of small C conservatism in that, you know, when consumers are swamped in like this paradox of choice, you defer to what you already know. Um, And this kind of abundance can encourage kind of conservatism and consumer decision-making. So when there's, when there's potential for doubt, we're comforted by what we know, not what's new. Um, And so basically like these, these, these songs don't, go in and out of circulation they remain in circulation they used to be able to be taken out right you have like deleting stock or whatever um, now you don't now you're competing with with kind of every song that's ever that has, has ever existed and that kind of um mass uh, you know unfathomable like unimaginable quantity of music that you're competing with is in a way it's like how could this not be impacting the way musicians understand their work, like the first thing we've talked about, understand the the, va- the value of what they do, the status of value. Um, and the third thing that we talk about, which is the, the impact it has on their relationships. Like, how can it not? Yeah, and
2: I wonder how much that impacts uh, music and how it sounds a lot alike. It's uh, maybe memetic isomorphism drawing inward towards a, a common sound in order to become popular, although that always doesn't create success
1: either. Right, right and there's there's been some interesting papers that have kind of been written on that, you know, this idea of like simplicity cells, um, Persino, Klimek and ferna 2014 paper. Um, you also have this kind of um, increased kind of conventionalism in music that's produced. There was a paper by um, Sarah in 2012 which talked about that as well. Um, yeah, yeah, there's there's things' there's things being written on that for sure.
2: And then maybe a, a a final question from our lineup here is, uh, what is the significance of family support for the musician's career? We talk about maybe how they're self-made in this meritocracy um, illusion, but we know that it's not it's not solely their own efforts that create uh, popularity in musicians and their music. What what role does the family play?
1: Yeah, I mean this this is a it's a huge one. Um, and this is the kind of, I guess this is the third finding really of the book, which is about how the kind of social world of musicians is implicated in this kind of increased levels of anxiety and depression that we found in the, in the kind of survey and the, and the musicians that we spoke to. Um, so in, in, like, in terms of the, in terms of like the family relationships, it, it's a, it's a really, really interesting one. um, one of the things we found when we were speaking to people is like, of course, it's, there's a certain, there's a certain sense in which you, your success, whatever that success is, as we've, as we've mentioned, is reliant on this kind of social infrastructure that you have. But many of the people that we spoke to talked about a kind of tension of having to rely on this kindness and support of others, because it's, it, it was kind of seen through the prism of kind of guilt. You know, it was kind of more than one should expect or it kind of comes at this price you had people that we spoke to say things like you know i don't want to be a kind of um, i don't want to be broke all the time and be like scrounging off my girlfriend and she has to pay for our holidays that we go on all this time and and you could really hear people struggling with that and similarly the impact it could have on their marriages um we had a really interesting interviewee who kind of described his musical career as, as like having a third person in their marriage or a third person in their relationship, but that it was kind of um, reliant on those people, but impacted the relationship that people had with them. Right. So there's a, there's a certain paradox between being told that everyone's got an equal opportunity to succeed in music and the reality that actually that success depends on a certain level of social, uh, of social privilege, I suppose is the word, and kind of networked relationships of power. And that that has specific implications for the psychological well-being of individuals and, and their relationships with others, because they're trying to reconcile that reality. So successes are not isolated incidences of kind of geniuses rising to the top, right? They're embedded, they're embedded not only in the kind of commerciality of the music industries and the, in, and the industry infrastructures, but also in, in the associations of families, of friends, and, and of the kind of social world. And I mean, what we what we found is that actually, in this environment where you're kind of where you are reliant on where, where the kind of role of the family needs to be kind of um, unpacked, basically, and, and understood in a bit more detail, one of the things that came up a lot is people talked about one of the things that impacted on their families was a kind of collapsing of the of the work leisure distinction, like this idea that it's kind of increasingly difficult to work out like when you're at work and when you're not. That's one of the things we've talked about, right, that in the status of work, that it's difficult to to work out when you're working and when you're not. And what is really interesting here is that you get this kind of really intense destabilizing process where there are a number of factors that all are occurring at the same time, which kind of damage... The relationships that people have whether with their family or with others so you have the financial precarity which we've talked about we have the difficulty in defining what work is which we've talked about we've talked about a kind of entrepreneurial competitive individualism which says that like it's all on you the control is in your hand you have this kind of meritocratic idea that everyone's got an equal chance of winning and you have a massive reluctance to ever give up or give up and you know to stop making music because It's the prism through which people define your life. You know, the question is if you're symbolically and practically self-actualizing in a kind of process of entrepreneurship where you're always working and never working, where, you know, great success can be just around the corner and where the emotional cost of stopping is so enormous. The question is like, when do you stop? When do you stop working in this way? And so, the way in which it comes to impact, not only is it reliant on those family um, networks, which you asked about, but it also then comes to, it can come to, um, I'm reticent to use the word damage, but it can certainly come to impact on them. I mean, one of the ways we we explore the ways that it impacts on them is we use this analogy of thinking about musical ambition as being akin to a gambling addiction. So whilst we don't we don't say like having a musical career is like having a gambling addiction, what we say is that, if we use a gambling addiction as a way of thinking about it, this helps us to understand how it can be quite damaging. So you always hear people talk and say things like, oh, it's a gamble, you know, you've got to take risks and and all this sort of stuff. And of course, the cultural economics that talks about the nature of marketing products in this way understands the nature of those risks. And people have talked about marketing music as being like a gamble. But what we did in the book is we took the DSM-5 and the way in which it defines a gambling addiction. And they basically said that you could suggest that a gambling addiction could be diagnosed if four out of the following nine characteristics were observed. And what we said was, if you replace the word, like when I say the word gamble or gambling, if you change that word to make music or making music, there are some really striking parallels. I mean, I can read you some of these factors. So... um, Restless or irritable when trying to cut down or stop gambling. Frequent thoughts about gambling, such as reliving past gambling experiences, planning the next gambling venture, or thinking of ways to get money to gamble. Gambling when feeling distressed. After losing money when gambling, returning to get even. Jeopardising a significant relationship or career opportunity because of gambling. Relying on others to help with money problems caused by gambling. The parallels with changing the word gambling to music making are really, really profound. And it, it, what we try and do is to try and look at the ways in which this kind of musical labour, where what you are producing is kind of content and data or whatever, can have quite damaging outcomes for for the people for for the relationships that people have around you. Um, and it's it's just particularly stark to do that for work which brings the people that we spoke to and interviewed like so much joy you know it's like a source of so much pleasure and fulfillment and joy in their lives and brings so much joy and meaning to others and what we are i suppose trying to do is to try and to say like this kind of work like matters and is meaningful both to the people that make it and to other people it's special and it's important and it it defines so much of our lives and yet look at what it does to the people that make it that's basic that's in simply in the simplest terms that's kind of what what we're doing in this book and saying let's think about ways that we can live better doing this because this isn't right like something isn't right about this
2: yes particularly uh in in careers that are made out of music and unequal opportunities to to get into the into those positions. But even once in that position, some careers falling, um, falling out of nowhere, and, and people ending up impoverished as a result of their music career, um, falling dead overnight, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, we, we refer to this as this kind of process of kind of, uh, they call it deification and demolish, right, this fact that these careers are are in the same way that kind of athletes careers are, you know, um, there are actually some interesting parallels to like athletes that we talk about through the, in the book, like this literature, which talks about kind of perfectionism amongst musicians and perfection, perfectionism amongst athletes and stuff, the way that it kind of, um, what well, can appear, it actually kind of appears to come and go very quickly. Cause it, whilst it, it looks to average listeners to come very quickly, often hidden behind those stories of kind of overnight success is kind of 10 years of work. It's just that nobody has kind of seen that but it's kind of appears to come and go very quickly, but yeah, if you're not kind of, uh, you know, what, what's being discussed at the kind of, you know, in the UK, it's very much the case. Well, it used to hold very, very significant power. I would argue it still holds very significant power is like BBC radio one. You know, you want your music, you know, playlisted on BBC radio one. Well, if BBC radio one decide that, you know, we're we're not into like rappers now where guitar bands are back in fashion or what, you know, that that's, that's completely changed the the infrastructure of how you situate yourself has completely changed um uh and so that, that it it can appear like you say to, to come and go very quickly um it's a, it's an extremely um changeable and kind of just just i mean the word is really like precarious i mean it's a precarious kind of work but what we're doing in the book is to say like Yes, there's lots of literature, kind of sociological and otherwise, that's looked at this idea of precarity. You know what precarity is, how we can, you know, and going back to kind of when Guy Standing introduced the term of of the kind of precariat. What we're doing here is really building on an idea which actually Guy Standing mentions, but he doesn't really draw on hugely. Um, Guy Standing introduced this idea of the precariatized mind. I just think that's a really interesting and helpful concept. And he talks about that as being a psychological state that's brought about as a, a, a consequence of that precarious work. So heightened levels of anger, anxiety, alienation. He draws on Durkheim and his discussion of anime. And that's really what we're looking at is like, can we expand the way in which we understand the notion of precarity and precariousness and say that it is not only a kind of economic workplace dimension there's a, there's a psychological dimension to this too excellent well thank you for your time today dr musgrave uh, we're all out of time but i i have one final question what are you working on now so both myself and sally are actually working on a, a follow-up project to this with um a neuropsychologist at the University of Westminster is called Catherine Loveday. And we're, so we're working on a, on a kind of follow up project there to explore some of the things we've done in this book using some clinical measures of anxiety and depression with a, with a kind of clinician who has some kind of expertise in, in that area, um, or a clinical psychologist, sorry, as opposed to a clinician. Um, so that's gonna be really interesting, which we're, we're just writing up some of the findings of that at the moment. Um, and I've got some forthcoming papers that are going to be coming out um, in the next couple of months that draw on a kind of wide variety of factors kind of related to this, including um, ethical decision-making in the music industry. Um, and hopefully I'm probably going to be thinking about what what we've written here um, tells us about what's going on with COVID-19, because obviously we were writing this and then COVID happened and we thought, oh God, do we need to write a whole other book? But in fact, I think COVID has just amplified and exaggerated and made more brutally acute lots of the things we're discussing in the book so i think there'll be there's interesting resonances for what's happening now so there's there's more to be done
2: yes and i look forward to to reading your upcoming material both uh, in papers as well as uh in your upcoming project if it turns into a book i i hope you keep in touch and and let me know uh as new work is is released
1: thanks so much thank you so much for having me again this is uh
2: an episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network, and look forward to talking with you all soon.